Hey, well, it's great to see you guys. Good morning. Uh, if you're new, thank you for joining us today. Um, I'm not Pastor Joe. I am the, the youth pastor. I'm at the bottom of the totem pole, but it's okay. Uh, I'm thankful to be here to open up the Word of God with you guys. Pastor Joe is, is out with, uh, with his wife, Erin, and their, their youngest son, Jackson, uh, celebrating their thir- his 13th birthday uh, with a little... Uh, uh, manhood trip, you know, you, you know, you turn 13, you become a man, and they, they do that, they celebrate with their kids, so I was thankful to be able to give Pastor Joe a break, and to be able to preach, and if you're wondering, um, yes, every time I preach the Word of God, I'm terrified, I really am, especially uh, on a Sunday morning, I get the opportunity to teach on Wednesdays to the youth, the junior high, and the high school, and it's, it's a, such a joy to be able to do that. Uh, I love being able to, to say that that's my job, is to teach and to disciple um, and train and equip, really, the, the junior high and high school students. It's a privilege. And to be able to then share that with you guys on, on this Sunday morning today, I'm just really thankful for that. And where my heart has been has been in the book of James. Uh, we've been going through the book of James as a youth ministry. So I'm basically just bringing the platter that I've been given on Wednesday nights now to you guys this morning, um, just seeing what the Lord's been doing, even working in my heart and with our students. So if you guys have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to James chapter 1. James chapter 1, we'll be looking at three verses this morning, verses 16 through 18. A very fitting text for us in light of Thanksgiving coming up. There's a lot to be thankful for, (laughs) and certainly James gives us just, just a few more things to be thankful for, just to be reminded of. So let's start by reading our text, and then we'll begin to look at it together. James chapter 1, starting in verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Let's pray as we begin our time together. Father, I have all people feel so humbled right now in this moment. As I open your word, as I see what you have written for us, the instruction, the reminders. Lord, you have revealed yourself to us plainly in your word. You are a God who is unlike any other thing or person. Lord, may we know you more and better today. Father, I pray that you speak through me as well, that you would give me the words and the wisdom and the boldness to preach your word, the word of truth that saves sinners and draws them to you, Lord. We're thankful for that, God, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we begin, I want to just remind us of a unfortunate and sinful tendency that we as human beings have. We, we have a tendency as, as sinful humans to love to blame other people. We love to blame people for many things, many issues, and maybe some of it is justifiable, but sadly we as individuals, as humans, we tend to feel a pull inside of us to want to blame anything and anyone else for our sin and temptation in our life. Even as believers, we, we may have a sinful incl- inclination to believe a somewhat pervasive lie in our heart that we are not the problem that we are not the reason that bad things happen, but there must be someone or something else that's causing us to, to act in a certain way. Whether that's another individual, a spouse, a, a child, or someone that you work with, we naturally want to shift the blame. Humans are blame shifters at our heart. And the most blasphemous form of this, of course, would be to instinctively want to blame God for the sin in our life. We may have a desire or even a thought or a, maybe a, just a curiosity in our flesh to want to think maybe God is the reason 
why I am the way that I am. And, and because he's sovereign and because he's God and I see this sin and the problems in my life, therefore, maybe God's the one to blame. Of course, this is a deception that we, we need to address. And I think it's important for us to just remember that man is weak. We are, we are weak and because of that, we are so easily deceived. We become especially susceptible towards deception when we go through trials. When we go through difficult circumstances, our flesh starts to lure and entice our fainting hearts to believe the lie that maybe the reason I'm in alcohol so much or I can't stop looking at things that I know I shouldn't look at or maybe the reason I am just so devoted to my work or to video games or to money or to gambling is because God has placed me in a very difficult situation. I, I, I mean, I think this is something we all to some degree can relate with. As humans, we, we struggle with, with going to things that can temporarily comfort us. We go to things that we think can help us believing a lie, but the deeper layer that we often don't consider is that when we go through trials, what we believe about God is really exposed. And this is the pressing danger here in the letter of James. James is this loving, loving, caring pastor of Jewish believers in the Jerusalem church, and he writes this letter to now these dispersed believers who've had to be pushed out from their homes due to increased hostility and persecution against the Jewish Christian church. And now they're living in foreign lands and Gentile lands amongst pagan idol worshiping Greco-Roman God, uh, not, not God fearing cultures. But these believers are without a doubt going through the greatest trials that they have maybe ever gone through in their life. And it's all for the name of Christ. And, and James recognizes that there, there are some people who may start thinking to themselves, okay, if God is so good, if he's so loving, if he's so wonderful as I want him to be, then why am I going through this trial? Why is God allowing this to all take place? These Jewish believers certainly were feeling the burden of life, but not only that, the burden of their sin. There were some beginning to even believe this heinous lie about God, that God is the one to blame for the, their temptation and even the sin in their life. A deception of the most cata catastrophic consequences for the one who is fooled by it. But as I said, these believers, they're not alone, right? Like, we can sympathize. Sadly, we can. What a heartbreaking, heartbreaking thing would it be for, for any servant of any kingdom to, to begin to question their, their king's character. But I, I do want to ask and just think about this. As those of you who are parents, fathers, mothers out there, what is the most saddening thought about your kids like, what is the worst thing that you could imagine your kids to believe about you? Like, certainly, don't get me wrong, there, there are some things that would be devastating for you as a parent to have a, have a child walk away from the Lord, right? To lose a child, to, to have your children be at odds with one another. But I think there is something that is up there as well as being one of the most just heartbreaking things that any parent could ask of their children. And I think it's this, that if you have a child who questions your character, to have a, a child, to have a son or a daughter who looks at you and thinks that you are a lie, a hypocrite. Maybe you, you think this way about your parents. Maybe your kids think this way about you and as a parent, to have a child grow cynical towards you may be one of the most devastating things you could ever imagine. To have no relationship with them, for them not to trust you, for them to doubt you. Yet somehow there are many of us who 
may think these things in our hearts about the Lord. I believe this is one of the chief reasons why why many people walk away from the Lord later on in their life. Those who grow up in the church, I even know of some people that I have grown up with who have been taught the truth. They know the gospel. They know what is, what is the, the, the guide of, of the Christian life. They know what the word says. They have good theology. But as they are confronted with trials and their sin is aroused through their own sinful lusts within them, Instead of going back to God's character and his goodness and his love as a father who has open arms, they then begin to harden their heart. They begin to question God's character. They begin to question God's desires for their life. They grow cynical of them. They are thus deceived into believing a lie about God. And this goes back all the way to the garden, right? When you think about the garden, what was the lie that, that Satan wanted Adam and Eve to believe? It was, it was, of course, did God really say? Did God really say? Like, just think about what he said. Did, did he really mean what he meant? You begin to question who God is. Why am I struggling with sin? Why do I still not have joy or peace like I want? Why has God supposedly given me these gifts in my life but not the means to see those gifts be used in a way that pleases him. And if you have those thoughts and you don't know who God is, you will begin to be deceived. Instead of accepting the fact that maybe you are the problem, you'll begin to believe Satan's chief lie that God is the source of your sin and temptation. This is what James is unpacking for us. If you guys see in verse 16, it is the command, it is the imperative that is driving the rest of our text this morning. What is it? He says, do not be deceived. Do not be led astray. That's the idea, like you're being pulled off the path. And you can just see James' heart, my beloved brothers. Again, this pastor who just cares for his sheep. Satan will plant seeds in your mind to get you to believe lies about God's nature, his purposes, Satan knows it is impossible to walk with God when you are questioning him. And like I said, not only is this blasphemous to God, but how heartbreaking it is for God when we would believe this lie about him. So, James, he's heard the reports. He sees this, he sees this weed of deceit beginning to grow in some of the believers' minds. No doubt, I believe also is probably from the culture, the pagan Gentile world. They're saying, hey, if you're suffering, if you're going through these things, you probably should think about the God that you're worshiping. I mean, look at your life. Does this God really want these things for you? And they're starting to believe this, this worldly lie and he's seeing this weed of deceit sprout. And what does James do? He seeks to bring out the weed killer and he wants to do it immediately. So what's James' point? It's what he says, don't be deceived. Hey, don't believe this lie. There is no one like Yahweh. There is no one like God. And what I love about what James does in verses 17 through 18 is he really gives us the, the, the answer, the, the true um, timeless truth here about, about why we can trust God. You know, we can trust God because he's God. Yeah, of course, that's an easy answer. Maybe that's your, your go-to, like, why do you trust God? Well, he's God. Well, James just wants to deepen that. He wants to remind all of us of, of why we have a father who is worth trusting. And that's a really great thing. That's an amazing privilege that we have a God who is, in fact, trustworthy because of who he is, because of what he does, and because of what he is going to do one day. And that's what James shows us. God's holy nature, his redemptive purposes, all of it are to be reminded and to show us the rich benevolence of the God we serve and have. So this morning, guys, if there's a point to this, in this sermon, it's, it's really this, okay? I want us to behold the glory of our trustworthy father. That's, that's the, the overarching point here, okay? 
That's what James, I believe, he wants to, to encourage us with. Behold the glory of our trustworthy Father. My prayer upon us beholding such a, a glory in the Father is that we would be reminded of the Father that we have a Father who's worth trusting. A Father that we can go to and trust and lean upon when those, those thoughts of doubt maybe pop up in our lives. The next layer to that, you know, of application would be, hey, we got a lot to be thankful for this week, right? Thanksgiving is coming up. You know, you're gonna be going around the, the table, hey, what are you thankful for? I mean, these, whoop, these jump the gun, right? Like, man, I'm thankful that we have such a God in Yahweh. And what James shows us is really five reasons that you and I can trust the Father. And that's what we're gonna look at this morning as we behold the glory of our trustworthy Father. Five reasons you can trust the Father. And I'm gonna just list them all out right now and we'll go through each one. You can trust the Father because he is first, exceedingly generous. Secondly, you can trust the Father because he is deeply personal. Third, you can trust the Father because he is absolutely good. Fourthly, you can trust the Father because he is eternally unchanging. And fifth and last, you can trust the Father because he is sovereignly gracious. Let's look at the first one here together. Now you, believer, you need to be reminded that you can trust the Father because he is first exceedingly generous. If you guys look at verse 17, just, we just read it, but I think it's helpful for us to read again. What does James say after, after his indictment? After this imperative to not be deceived, he jumps first in, in verse 17 to this. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. You can trust the Father for his, he is exceedingly generous. What this verse shows us is that God is the source of all good gifts. That his gifts are of a, a, a reflection of who he is and that he is exceedingly kind and benevolent towards his creatures. In fact, look at what the language is in verse six, 17. He says, every gift, all kinds, every single gift of all types and kinds is in this life that is good and perfect comes from above. Now, one clarification. This does not mean that God is this Santa Claus or this Easter bunny kind or type of figure. God is rather the real, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-generous God who provides for his children. We see the word gift here, and it's repeated a couple times for us. The word gifts has this emphasis on free. It's different than, than wages, right? A gift is, is really the antithesis to a wage. A wage is something that is, is earned, you work for, that it's measured based on your performance, but a gift is entirely different. A gift is is something that is freely offered and freely received. There are no strings attached at all. And God's gifts are exactly this way. They are unconditional, unearned. This word dorema is used only one other time and it's Romans 5, 16. And we'll look at that in just a little bit. But I do want us to just even just consider the benevolence of God in relation to his gifts. The benev that word benevolence, it's, his, it's out of his goodness like God is just overflowing with this kindness. Like he's radiating just this, this loving, caring heart and he just is benevolent, he shares it. Look what James says. Well, what does he reveal for us about these gifts? The literal reading, it's, it's really interesting, guys, because it's, it's a little different than we, we see in our, in our ESV. It's actually literally read as all good giving and every perfect gift is from above. Different from what we say where it says every good gift and every perfect gift, it seems to appear that there's, there's kinds of gifts, that God's gifts are good and God gifts, his gifts are perfect. But the Greek is different. James is saying, listen, all good giving, it highlights the action. It highlights the, the, the action of God's giving. It is, it is good. It is right. It is morally acceptable. There's no hidden motive behind God when he gives and of course, we can be well reminded of those people and how we can be maybe even subconsciously giving gifts, but in our hearts have a secret motive. God is not this way. Never. 
He's never this way. God, he always gives out of the goodness of his heart. And we're gonna get to that in a moment. But look at the gifts. What about them? Well, verse 17 shows that these gifts, they come from above. They spring forth and flow from the throne of heaven where God resides, where God dwells. And these gifts are fashioned. They're fashioned by the Lord himself in this heavenly realm. Colossians 3.1, if you've then be, been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. These gifts, they, they come from above and they flow down to us. These, these gifts are also perfect in verse 17. They are without defect. They are without default. They, the word perfect has this idea of being complete or to be full or mature. It's, James uses this word earlier in, chap, in chapter 1 verse 4 with God's use of trials even as being a tool to make us complete. And I can't help but even just remember in my own life all the gifts that people have given me. And, and I, I think about the gifts that you didn't ask for. Or in other words, I hate to say it, but the bad gifts. You know what I'm talking about. You're excited. You got this present. Oh, how thoughtful. You open it up. You're like, what is this? Like in your heart, you know, you're like, I didn't ask for this at all, nor would I ever, ever ask for this or want this. But you got to put that brave face on. Thank you. Uh, this is great. Uh, it's, the, it's the exact one that I wanted, right? You know, and you want to be kind and thoughtful. And, you know, there, I've received gifts like that in my past. Um, people very kind. I'm not going to name any names um, at all. I'm not going to call any of you out, but uh, I've received gifts like that. And, and maybe you have too, but, but the point is this, God is not like that. God doesn't get, ever give a gift that is of no value or a gift that you're just like, what is this? Like, why do I, I, you know, maybe it's a gift you didn't ask for, but you realized you needed. That's another thing too. Like I, I got a drill one Christmas, you know, I was like, okay, it's not really like a gift. I kind of wanted one and I was like, no, but I need this. Let's go. And I've been using it ever since. It's been awesome. But that's kind of how we operate, right? Like we want gifts. We want them to be good, right? But God, his gifts, they're never, there's never a defect. They're perfect. They're right. They're good. And God's gifts, they're fashioned for you. That's what I love about this text. It's just a reminder that God knows what you're going through. He knows why you're going through it. And God is the one who then gives you the gifts that are supposed to enable you to help get through that trial. They help complete you. God's gifts are so good. You know, the thing about gifts from God, it could be family, friends, marriage, kids, vacations, home, life itself, food, water, your personality, your health, your, you know, creation, the fact that we can see colors, the, you know, your work, your job, the feeling of being satisfied in life. I mean, Israel received a lot of, of good gifts from the Lord, land, the law, promises of God of a king who would come and reign, Christ who would come as the Davidic king, a remnant. But think about the spiritual gifts that God just is so kind to give us. Peace, joy, confidence, assurance, wisdom, his spirit, adoption, sanctification, holiness. You have a new purpose and identity. All of these things, they are, are they not gifts from God? Did you do anything to earn those things from God? I'll give you an answer. No, you didn't. <laughs> these are all gifts. You, of course, were reminded of the gift of salvation, Romans 6, 23, right? For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, right? Amen? All of this pointing to, to Christ, the crown of all gifts to man, the most precious of gifts. And as a parent, I think you would agree that your most precious thing in your life is probably your kids, I mean, that is, I don't have kids one day, Lord willing, and they will be precious to me. And for the Lord, the son is 
most precious in his eyes. And we can say thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. 2 Corinthians 9.15, speaking of Christ. Guys, this is just who God is. He is exceedingly kind. He is exceedingly generous to his children. And some fathers are not. Some fathers are selfish. Some fathers are self-centered. They want what they want. They don't give generously. They, they are the opposite of who God is. So maybe learn from the generosity of God and be characterized by this same quality towards one another, one another. So God, he is exceedingly generous. Secondly, you can trust the Father because of this, but you can also trust the Father. Secondly, for he is deeply personal. For he is deeply personal. And this one is really interesting because James decides to include just five words for us that maybe not maybe maybe weren't necessary at first like when you read it you know you read verse 17 these gifts they they come from above every gift is from above from the father of lights but he decides to add these words right here coming down these gifts they are coming down from the Father, and what I love about what James is doing is that although God is transcendent, although he is above all like a king who, who sits on high on his throne, he is also intentionally very personal with his creation. He's very personal with each of us. I believe this is evident by what James is writing in this text. It's an expression of It's supposed to show us that God, it reveals how he lowers himself to the depths of human weakness and his gifts come with him as well. God could choose to to reside and to stay on high. He could decide, you know what? I'm holy, I'm good, I'm I'm the Lord over all and in my creation they need to worship me and I'm gonna just, I'm gonna stay and I'm I'm gonna stay on my throne And I want my people to look to me, but instead, what does he do? He brings gifts and he comes down. It's this idea of descending. He's he's going down a set of stairs in order to be with man. In John 6, 38, what does Jesus say? Well, John 6, 38, Jesus says, for I have come down from heaven. Like, this is Christ. He He has come down not to do my own will of the will, but the will of him who sent me. Similarly, similarly in John 3, 13, no one has ascended, so has gone up into heaven, except he who has descended from heaven, the son of man. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. This is Christ, of course, Right? The revelation of God, the great gift of the triune God to man, Jesus Christ. And from Christ and through Christ do all the other gifts flow. All the other gifts spring forth and come in and through Jesus Christ. And if we had more time, I would love to show you that, but we don't, so I gotta keep moving. But Revelation 21 verse two, even this reminder. Just think about this, listen to these words. John, he says, and I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. God could choose to be only far and distant, but he is not. He desires a relationship with you. He he has taken the initiative to pursue pursue you. He has left heaven. He has come down through the, the person and work of Christ. As Isaiah 57, 15 says, for thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. What, is what does he say? I dwell in the high and holy place, that idea of transcendence, but also with him who is contrite and lowly spirit. This reveals so much about the humility of God, does it not? This is not how Allah is. This is not how Buddha is. This is not how any sort of false god or any other false religion is. Many, many of these gods, they they do not desire a deep personal relationship with their people, but Yahweh does. But the Lord does. Many fathers have completely been disconnected from their kids' lives. There are those fathers who are not interested like they ought to be, nor, 
Do they spend the time with their kids like they should? Maybe you're one of them. Maybe you're a father here and you're just, because you're reminded of the character of God as a loving father, such a father, you're, you're feeling even the conviction of the way you're fathering your children. And you know what? That's a great thing. Because he is the ultimate quintessential father that all other fathers and parents are called to represent, to display, to imitate. I think it goes without saying as well that if you're a father and you do not desire a personal relationship with your kids, why should you expect them to trust you? Why should you expect to even be close to them? And I'm thankful for my dad, as I was reminded of this week, although not perfect, he, he excelled in this. And I'm very thankful for that. Guys, you have a God who is a father who cares deeply and personally before you, who has decided to come down with his gifts and invest his gifts and to, to give them to you. And because of that, you can trust him. So, so, so third, let's keep moving. Third, you have a father who is trustworthy. You can trust him because he is exceedingly generous. You can trust the father because he is deeply personal. And third, in verse 17, you can trust the father for he is absolutely good. I mean, this is kind of the, 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 the climax, I would say, of this set of verses right here. Everything kind of comes out of the father of lights, the title that James gives God, he is the father of lights. He's not the father of darkness. He's not the father of the shadows. He's not the father of anything else but of lights. And of course, when I say that he is absolutely good, I, I, I'm picking up on the metaphor, the, the analogy that James is using by calling God the father, the father of lights. He, he's highlighting and just exalting the goodness of God. God is the father of light, this, this great contrast with that of darkness, right? I mean, we see it in Hollywood. I mean, we see it in movies, we read it in books. There's the good side, which is the light, and we see the, the dark side, right? I mean, you just think of Star Wars, right? We see the light against the dark. We see this all over the place. Well, where did it come from? It came from the word of God. This is where it began, and people recognize that the light is good because it is transparent. You can see what is happening in the dark. It is, it is wicked. It is evil because in the darkness, you can hide. You can live in your sin. You can, you can live in the ways that are contrary to what God desires. John three nineteen says this. I was just, just, my heart was heavy even when I was reading this verse this week. John three nineteen, and this is the judgment. The light has come into the world. Who's the light? Well, earlier in John, it's Christ. Christ is the light. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light. Why? Well, because their works were evil. Man is naturally bent towards the darkness. Like we, we naturally love, love the darkness. Why? Well, our works are evil because the things that we do, the 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 actions, the thoughts, the desires are all bent. They're all perverted by things that are evil and therefore corrupted with this darkness. We naturally love the darkness because we can hide in the darkness. It, it is our, in some ways, it is our home. It's our domain. It's our team. It's our nature in sin. And we just love what is bad, this is what we've been born into because of Adam, according to Romans 5. And in Mark 10, 18, as Jesus says, no one is good except God alone. And of course, that's convicting to hear, but it's also a really encouraging reminder. God is not good because he gives good gifts. God is not good because he's a nice guy, you know, like everyone's a nice guy. Like we're just like, oh, that guy's great. That good dude, right? He's a good guy. But this is not how God is, right? God, God doesn't do things, therefore 
he's good. He is not good because of the experience. And he is not good because the narrative just happens to say that he's good. God is inherently good in all that he is and does. MacArthur puts it this way. He is the perfect sum, source, and standard of all that which is good. He is the absolute good, and he cannot be pleased with anything short of this mark. For God to be good is to be perfect. If there's any molecule, if there's any atom, if there's any jot or tittle with, with God that is not good, it would then make him ungood, incomplete. Rather for us, we are naturally ungood and then can somehow produce good things in our life. God, he is inherently good in his essence and his nature. And from that flows every single thing that is good. There's not anything that God can do that is, that is not good. Every choice, every decision, every thought, every motive flows from the goodness of God. In fact, I would say that every single attribute about God is directly connected to his goodness. Why does God love? Because he is good. How does God love? In a good way. Where does God's mercy flow from? His goodness. What about his justice? His goodness. What about even his anger and his wrath? They all are connected and absorbed in the goodness of God. And this is all found in this idea of being the father of lights. 1 John 1, 5 through 6 says this, and this is the message we have heard. What's the message? What is it, John? What's the message we've heard and we proclaim? That God is light. That he is light. And in him is no darkness at all. As we think about the light, as we think about God being the father of lights, I think it's important for us to even be reminded of just two things. First, that Christ is the light of God revealed to his creation. Jesus is the light that shines in the darkness. John 1, 4, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus says in John 8, 12, that I am the light of the world. He's affirming that his deity in that. He's affirming not only his goodness, but who he is in light of God. But secondly, I think it's important for us to remember that if you're a believer in Christ, you are the true offspring of the father of lights. That you bear the mark of your spiritual father, one of the light, one of goodness, one of truth. Ephesians 5, 8, for at one time you were in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. And of course, the words of Christ, right? In Matthew 5, 14, you, believer, you are the light of the world. Verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. All of this, what does it remind us of? Well, God is the Father of lights. And there's a lot of fathers out there who are just not good. God is good. The Father is good. The Son is good. The Spirit is good good. With the Lord, he is the object of goodness. And believer, you need to be reminded of that goodness, especially when you're going through trials. Especially when you're going through difficult circumstances, right? He is beautifully good. He is never lacking in it in any way, shape, or form, nor are any of his other attributes outside of his inherent goodness. And this is a great segue into our, our fourth point this morning. You can trust God the Father, not only because he is absolutely good, but fourthly, you can trust the Father for he is eternally unchanging. God the Father, he is eternally unchanging. The big theological word here is God is immutable. He is outside of being mutated or of mutation. In Malachi 3.6, for I the Lord do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. I mean, that's pretty clear. God's like, I do not change. I do not change my mind. I do not change my ways. I do not change in any form or thought. And what James is picking up on is that very same thing. He says, God is the father of lights. And he picks up on that same metaphor right after that. What does he say? He says, with whom, this father of lights, there is no variation or shadow due to change. 
What James is saying is this, this father who's the father of lights, right? He even uses it in a plural sense, which is really interesting, highlighting just the father of, of all those who are in Christ, who, who are of the goodness, who are of him. He says, this God, there is no variation There is no change of course. There is no transmission from one condition to another in any any way. But not only that, no variation or shadow due to change. So God is this, this father of lights. He's this great light. And there's not even any change on the level of the shadow that he casts. You know, the sun, it rises in the morning. It sets in the evening. You see the sun rise and you have, a, you have a long shadow that is being cast from the day, right? And, and as the sun goes higher into the sky, that shadow begins to get shorter and smaller. And as the day goes on, then that shadow changes. It morphs again and this happens day after day after day. But the Lord says this, what James says is God is not this way. There's not even a shadow that is due to change. The shadow, it it literally is the shade cast by an object, right? The other, the other language is the idea of shifting shadow. It's this, this term that literally is used of planets in their orbit. But here it's used figuratively to depict the immutability or the unchangeableness of God. So what is this idea of God not changing? Well, it doesn't mean that God is just this static cement he just is just there, no thought, like he's just a wall, doesn't change, doesn't mean this. It doesn't also mean that the Lord does not interact with his creation. God hears, he acts, but he is never caught off guard or ever changes. And that matters because when we understand that God is unchanging and he is eternally, infinitely unchanging, it grounds our confidence not only in who God is, but in redemption, That's why it matters. If God changes, should you worry? Yes. If God changes his mind, will you begin to doubt his promises to you? Yeah, you will. If God changes, even in the slightest, smallest of ways, what do you think that will do to your faith in him? But God does not change. Because this is true, God will never go back on his promises. He will never forsake you. He'll never change his mind about you or forget you. And that's Praise God for that, right? And far too often, there are fathers in this world who change. They grow tired of their jobs. They grow tired of their families. There are husbands who grow tired of their wives in their home, but the Lord never changes. Immutable, eternally the same. When God speaks, his word stands And because of that, you can trust him. Hebrews 6, 17. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with the oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we have fled for refuge. And might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set forth before us. What a great reminder, God is immutable. He's he's all-knowing, he's never surprised. All three parts of the Trinity are all infinitely unchanging in their divine qualities and attributes, and because of that, you can trust him and and be thankful. Fifth and last, guys, as we begin to close our time, and this is a big one, and I could preach a whole sermon on it, but I'm not, so you're welcome. Fifth and finally, you can trust God the Father because he is exceedingly generous because he's deeply personal. You can trust him because he is absolutely good. You can trust the father because he is eternally unchanging. And fifth and last in verse 18, you can trust the father for he is sovereignly gracious. I mean, we're talking about gifts. Verse 18, James decides to just put in the great gift of salvation. Look at verse 18. You wanna know who God is? Well, God, verse 18, of his own will, brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. James, just to capture this idea, there's really four parts to this. He says, of his own will, God brought us forth of his own will, that God was the one who initiated our salvation. It was not God 
or it was not you who decided to pursue God. It was not you who decided to love God on your own. It was not you who wanted God. Rather, it was him. It was always him. It was his own will that he pursued you, that he planned salvation and redemption through Christ. He brought you to himself. He chose you. He redeemed you. And he did all of it through the work of his son by the power of the spirit. It was of his own will. What James is saying is that this is an act of God and that apart from this act, no one could be saved. For you have been saved only because of the sovereign and gracious work of God in your life. It was God who gave you a mind to comprehend the truth. It was God who orchestrated every part of your life in order that you should come face to face, face, to face with his son and receive him in faith. It was God who broke you under the curse of the law. It was God who brought you the rest and the righteousness of Christ. It was always God the Father. And how do we hear that? And I think, man, what sovereign graciousness we have in God. What love has he shown us? From that, then the second part of this, it says that of his own will, he brought us forth. God, he brought you forth. This is the idea of regeneration. The wording is this idea of being born. You've been brought forth into this life to be spiritually born again. And maybe you think about Nicodemus, you think about John chapter three. He comes to Jesus, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you in John 3, 3, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. You must be born again. Paul, similarly in 2 Corinthians 5, Verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. All of this is what? It's by God's will. He has brought you forth. He has caused you to, to be of a new race, of a new kind, of a new life. We are God's people. Kent Hughes says this, because of a total act of grace rooted in the unpromptness of his goodness. Unprompted goodness. And thirdly, the tool that God used to accomplish, well, look what he says in verse 18. He did all this, brought us forth by the word of truth. By the word of truth, the logos, the word referring to the scriptures, of course, but also referring to the gospel, the true logos, the true word being Christ, John 1, right? That it is Christ, through Christ, through the instrument of the word of God, we are made new creatures it's a great reminder that if anything is able to save, if anything has power to breach the chasm between the cosmic realm and, the, and this real physical reality that we live in, it is the word of God. It is the truth. Romans 10, 17, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. This is why we're committed to the word, church. This is why everything we do comes in and through this every week, every day. It's because this is what saves, not what we think, not what we do. It's this word. And fourth, guys, what we see here with, with James, he kind of ends with this amazing mic drop. He says that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. And I'm out of time, but what I would love to show you guys is what James is picking up on, this theme in scripture. What is God's purposes in all of this? It's so that we should be a kind of first fruits. God wants us and he's created and orchestrated all of redemption that we should become this spiritual analogy of a kind of first fruits. It's, you know, Leviticus 23, the ceremonial law of the Mosaic covenant, right? Israel was commanded to give of their first fruits. They would look at all their crops, they'd find the best of the best and they would give it to God. They'd devote it to God. They would look at their cattle, they'd look at their sheep, they'd look at their land, they'd look at their, their possessions and they would give of their first fruits, the best of the best to God. Proverbs 3, 9 through 10, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. So is that what James is saying? Well, that we should be first fruits. Like God is, he wants us to be the best of the best. Yes, there is some truth there, but notice the language that James uses. He doesn't just say that God wants us an orchestrated salvation, that we should be first fruits. He rather says that we should be a kind particular kind of first fruit. I would love to look at this more, but I can't. 1 Corinthians 15 highlights this so beautifully. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 20 says that in fact Christ has been raised from the dead. Christ is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by man came death, by man also has come the resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also Christ shall be made alive, but each in his order, Christ the firstfruits, 
and at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Do you see, even just briefly in this moment, what, what James, what Paul, they're saying is, God has orchestrated all these things in salvation that you would be of the kind and the likeness of the first fruit of Christ. There appears to be these ter- two, two different first fruits, those who are in Adam. There's this, this fruit, this seed, like an orange, right? Whatever the fruit we want it to be, right? And we all naturally are of this fruit. We have the seed of Adam. We're, we're in this kind, but then salvation, regeneration has come. God has orchestrated all of it sovereignly that we would then be taken from that kind, that we would be brought forth, that we'd be born again, and that we would be of a kind of first fruit that our likeness is after, is not of Adam, but of Christ now. This union with Christ that is separated from our prior past union with Christ This is the true gift, church. That we would resemble the kind, the likeness, the race of our true head who is Christ. This is the gift that is received in Jesus Christ. We're out of time today, but all of this church hopefully is a great reminder for us that we have such an amazing father. Such a kind, good relational, unchanging, sovereignly gracious Father, and you can trust him and be thankful even just this week because of that. I'm gonna pray for us and we'll close our time together now. Father, we thank you that you are this God that the scriptures had made clear. We are so thankful, Lord, that you are just so richly benevolent towards us, that you are unchanging. Father, there is none like you. There is no one like you. Father, I, I, I rec- I'm reminded and, and realize that there are some this week who are going to be with family for Thanksgiving, who are going to be with maybe family that they're unbelievers, Lord. Lord, I pray that the conversations this week would just be very encouraging, that they'd be edifying, Lord. Father, I pray that there would be gospel opportunities this week that people would hear the truth of Jesus Christ, that, that through siblings and through kids and uncles, whatever it may be, Lord, that, that you would be put on display in amazing ways, God. We're thankful, Lord, that we have you, such a father. May we remember that this week, every day, God, that we live in light of that truth. We pray all this in your son's perfect name, amen.